7.53 on the morning news. COVID-19 now infecting the sports landscape in North America. The NBA announcing it is suspending games until further notice, while the NHL says it will decide what to do with the season sometime today. Safety is obviously paramount, but how much is this costing team owners? To find out, we turn to sports economist Moshe Lander. Good morning, Moshe. Good morning. Moshe, just how much money are we talking about when something like this happens for a team? It's going to be millions of dollars. For, for the teams that are out of the playoffs, of course, the, the, it's going to end its season within the next month. So, you know, they maybe have five or six home games left. That's unfortunate. The teams that are out of the playoffs probably don't have a lot of fans showing up at this point because they've given up on the team. But for teams that are heading for the playoffs, like the Flames, uh, you know, that, that's when the owners make their money because they don't really have to make payroll uh, because you pay the players during the regular season, and during the postseason, they're merely given a lump sum depending on how far they go in the playoffs. So pretty much all of that ticket revenue that they generate is just profit. Moshe, would some leagues be more affected than others? For example, the NBA versus the NHL or that sort of thing? Well, you know, the NBA is maybe more popular globally than the NHL, so to whatever extent this is going to lose fans, say, that are watching on TV, um, sponsors that are going to maybe drop away, that's going to maybe have more of an impact than the NHL. The NHL is a little more gate uh, revenue driven than the NBA is. Uh, if there's any league that really has something at play here, it's Major League Baseball because they're about two weeks away from actually mm. beginning the season. And that season goes on interminably for <laughs> six months with 162 games. And so any disruption to that. Uh, is really going to affect, especially when those teams are walking around with payrolls in the 100 to $200 million range. Mm. The dollars aside, I wonder what your uh, opinion is personally. Again, with the NHL saying they'll uh, pull the trigger, make a decision today. Can the NHL uh, go ahead and not suspend, not follow the lead of the NBA? I mean, they can. Um, why would they want to? But the fact is that Somebody had to be first to come in and say, all right, we're done. Uh, and the NBA's hand even was kind of forced by the fact that one or maybe two players actually have the coronavirus. So it, it kind of gave the NBA even cover for something they didn't want to do because they realized that there's a lot of money at play here. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that the NBA has moved gives the NHL cover to just kind of say, you know what, we're done. Uh, for me personally, I'm a lifelong Flames fan, and I'm looking forward to that Battle of Alberta. Uh, it's going to be a lot harder to watch it on TV uh, when you could possibly see both arenas empty. Uh, kind of takes away some of that excitement and some of the, the tension. I mean, if they were not to do what they've done, I mean, you know, if the NHL by chance was to say, now nah, we're going to keep playing, isn't that looked upon by the fans as sort of socially unacceptable and that might cause a, a, a just as big a hit? I don't know that the fans are necessarily going to turn on the league. I think what's going to happen is that the fans that are most concerned about the spread of coronavirus are just not going to come. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that they'll necessarily boycott it into next year or five years from now or say, that's it, I'll never be a hockey fan again. So I think that merely the short-run impact is going to be that those that want to stay away are just going to stay away. Wow. And how about the Olympics? We've got about 30 seconds left. Uh, if they do cancel the Olympics, or the cost involved with that and uh, the IOC? Yeah, I, I think at best what's going to happen is that they're going to delay the Olympics, not cancel it. There, there are some contractual obligations that it does need to happen in 2020. So I think the announcement is just going to be that we're going to postpone it indefinitely and they might try and sneak it in, weirdly enough, in the winter. Oh, that would be very bizarre. But that's a tough call for the athletes who are all training to peak at that particular time. But I guess you have to do what's best for, for everybody involved. 
Absolutely. You can't risk people's health. And when you're talking about elite athletes, uh, they train for a reason. So I don't know that they want to jeopardize their own health. 7.09 on your Thursday morning. And it appears the coronavirus is not too interested in children. In fact, the World Health Organization reporting kids account for only 2.4% of the cases in China, which, of course, as we know, was ground zero for the virus. So do we know why and what it means? To try and get to the bottom of this, we're turning to Dr. Craig Janney, who's a researcher and infectious disease specialist at the Cummings School of Medicine. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. So what, what, what do you think is happening here? I mean, kids not being touched necessarily by this virus, what could that mean? That's a great question. Uh, we do know that some of them get infected, so, so the virus doesn't skip kids altogether. But importantly, when they do get infected, they don't get very sick. The, 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 this is the exact opposite of what we're seeing in senior citizens. So even the kids that, that do get the virus don't get sick. Um, and this is we have absolutely no idea why, but it is an interesting clinical point of view because we feel if we can understand this, if we can actually figure out the mechanism by which the kids do not get that sick, that might actually inform us how to treat older patients. Is that one of the keys to COVID-19 that makes it so difficult in that it's a different animal and this is underscoring that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the exact opposite of, of new flu strains. Often when we get a new influenza, which is a completely unrelated virus, but comes up every year, it's the, the youngest kids that we worry about. And in this case, it completely skips them. So there's this different mechanism and, and we are interested because whatever the kids are doing to fight this off it is not only effective at removing the virus but avoids damage to their own lungs they're not getting the pneumonia they're not getting the the other effects and that is again how we're trying to shape our treatment of older people is fight off the virus but limit any damage to our own tissues so dr Janney, you'll have to dumb it down for us but yeah. you know how, what do researchers do at this point to try and figure this out yeah so Sometimes it's really simple. A lot of studies we do, even here in Canada, we can work with just a small vial of blood. So a patient who's sick and then the same patient who recovers, we can look at what their immune cells are doing in their blood, what little proteins or chemicals their immune cells release to talk to the rest of the body. And we can see differences in those responses. We can often predict who's going to recover or who's not going to recover based on those little signals. And we're trying to map which immune mechanisms are activated, how the body sees the virus, and then how the body turns on its immune response. And by noticing those differences, that helps us shape things like vaccines. So we turn on the right part of immunity and turn off the wrong part of immunity. So as far as uh, getting to the bottom of uh, what might be the vaccine, so to speak, or, uh, you know, really help people that are dealing with the coronavirus, these things take time as far as uh, using them actually in humans. So we're far off from uh, from that point, aren't we? Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, with this case, with this, this newer discovery, we still don't even have the mechanism in hand. We, we know the kids are protected, and we're trying to learn why this is. Once we learn that, then we move to the next phase of, of developing a, a therapy that uses it. So, you know, a, a discovery like this does take a very long time. In the meantime, we are approaching more conventional vaccine approaches, which will probably arrive a little quicker, but even those are going to take upwards of a year. Could this lead to even more than just beyond the coronavirus? Could this lead to, you know, finding out how our immune system might change with age, that sort of thing? You're absolutely right. 
I mean, these are not things we obviously want to happen, but when they do and when there's these anomalies, we learn so much. And this can be used, again, for other viruses, for bacterial infections, even things like autoimmunity where your own body reprograms and causes damage. Understanding exactly the mechanisms involved really provide insight and might help us uh, treat patients in the future. And the changeability of a virus, if, if that's something you can talk about uh, to us, uh, Dr. Janney, early stages in Wuhan, we were hearing uh, they want to try to contain it before it kind of morphs and becomes a, a stage two of this strain of uh, coronavirus. What would something like that be? Uh, how does that work? Yeah, so all viruses are quite good at this. Uh, you know, influenza is probably the best, which is why we have a new flu every fall. Um, coronavirus does change. It changes a little more slowly. We do believe there's already more than one coronavirus circulating. So if we if we check the DNA of the coronavirus, there's at least two of them out there. They, they look very similar, but we have identified they, they've picked up a few small changes. The real fear is if it acquires a new change that, for example, lets it move even faster through public or live in the air longer, or increases the mortality rate. Uh, you know, right now it's quite low, but single changes could make it more like SARS, where, where mortality goes up to, to 10%. So we are very aware of this, and we're tracking it. And it's one reason why we do want to limit the spread as much as possible. The fewer people, the less chance the virus has to mutate. And we're doing that. We're seeing it with, you know, people being told to stay away or the large events themselves being cancelled, sports leagues calling off games. So does it make sense if kids are not necessarily being affected to close schools, say? Because that's certainly been a topic of discussion. Yeah. Yeah, it's another great question. Uh, it's almost counterintuitive that, you know, if kids don't get sick or if they get, you know, mildly sick, why are we closing schools? And one reason is kids are actually the best, what we would call, vector for this. They're little walking Petri dishes. I have two. Mm-hmm. I know what they do. Um, if they pick up the virus, even if they're only mildly sick, they're going to go visit their grandparents. They're going to go play with other adults. They're going to, you know, so they are the perfect method for this virus moving around. Uh, kids don't wash their hands. Kids don't stay two meters apart. Kids. <laughs> so unfortunately, although they themselves may get sick, it's less likely, they are going to bring the virus to the more susceptible people right. and harder to contain it if the kids have it. Well, counterintuitive would be the word to describe that. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you, the, the big question is, if you go to the pharmacies and the grocery stores, you cannot find the hand sanitizer. Yes. Uh, the effectiveness, if I can't find hand sani, if I'm using hot water and yep. soap and yep. doing 24 seconds, how does that compare perhaps to prevent us from uh, a virus compared to the hand sani? water is better. So uh, absolutely gold standard. If you can soap in water, that is far better than a hand sanitizer. Uh, the catch is to do it right. You, you can't just dip your hands under running water and, the, and then run away. Um, so if you're washing them for that 24 seconds, it's absolutely better than hand sanitizer. I know there's not always a sink present, but if you find one, you know, wash your hands. There's also some uh, interesting evidence saying that hand dryers, you know, they work fine, but but paper towels even more effective okay. because you're actually wiping off the bugs that, that the soap is loosened. So, you know, I, I wouldn't hesitate if there's a sink and soap that is by far the first choice and then hand sanitizer uh, when you don't have access to a sink. Doctor, I only have about 30 seconds left, but yep. we want to ask you again, we've talked about this before, but what's different about this virus? Is it that it lasts longer on our, our desks, our keyboards, that sort of thing? Yeah, it's lasting a little longer than, than things like the flu, so that, that provides a bit of a problem. It's also just that whole period of time before you get symptoms. So you can be spreading the virus even before you're, you're noticeably sick. So it makes it harder to contain if people don't know they're sick at the time. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us. Always full of great information. Appreciate Anytime. it.
Uh, thank you. That is Dr. Craig Janney. He's a researcher and infectious disease specialist at the Cummings School of Medicine. 719 on the morning news. Gas prices are incredibly low right now, with some stations even dipping below 80 cents for a liter of regular. That was yesterday. Who knows what today holds? Is this a good or a bad thing for Canadians as a whole? We're joined by Dan McTagg with Canadians for Affordable Energy. Good morning, Dan. Uh, good morning, Andrew. Uh, we uh, knew it was coming, uh, but I don't know if we would have thought we'd see 80 cents a liter or lower in our city. What's going on? Yep. Well, it's going to get worse than that, or better, depending how you look at it. Uh, look for 75 cents uh, as early as uh, Saturday. We're going to see another three cent net decrease tomorrow, five cents on Saturday. So we could be seeing prices a lot closer to 70 cents a liter. Uh, and that, of course, the latest round has to do with uh, President Trump's decision to ban Europeans from entering the United States for the next 30 days. So the markets are really in a free fall, and of course, uh, oil cannot find a footing anywhere. And of course, this could lead to even lower prices uh, or valuation for crude. So while it's great news for consumers who are saving about 30 cents a litre compared to what they were paying just a few weeks ago, uh, crude at 63 bucks a barrel for WTI at the beginning of January, now trading in the $29, $28 range, even lower for our own Canadian Western uh, Select. The fact is that uh, this uh, may have one positive, but uh, many negatives underlying it. Dan, how does it translate to the province in terms of, you know, for every dollar uh, per barrel lost, does it translate into millions? How does it look for the province and, and what comes into our coffers? Yeah, well, Sue, first of all, consider that, uh, you know, if your uh, baseline uh, Canadian blends basket of uh, fuel oil was trading at about $44, $45 a barrel at the beginning of January, now it's down to about 15 that's 30 times 4 million barrels a day. So the net loss in economic activity, 120, 130, 140 million and potentially growing, if the province is picking up 5% of that, then you can imagine that the hit to the bottom line is far, and not just for the revenues alone, the royalties, uh, you know, would amount to anywhere from eight to fifteen million per day. Now that number would have to be, you know, sort of. I, I'll allow the experts to really who understand financing better than I do, but there's no doubt that that has a pretty big implication, not just for Alberta, but for the country as a whole. And of course, you know, I'm here in Toronto. Many people think, oh, no big deal. This is great. We're getting cheap gas prices. And I remind them, the Canadian dollar has tumbled from 133 pennies to buy a U.S. dollar to 138 and growing, which means, of course, our purchasing power goes out the window. Why do I explain this to Torontonians and Maritimers and those in Quebec? Because every commodity we consume in Canada is based on the U.S. dollar. And so anybody who thinks it's funny to block pipelines or thinks it's great to take advantage of these low, ridiculously low oil prices has to think about their bottom line because sooner or later it's going to come back to pinch them, especially at places like the grocery store. Well, thank you for your insight this morning, Dan. Calgary's Black Radish Theatre's new production, Mesa, is getting rave reviews. Whether you're a cynic or a romantic, this show is for you. Joining us is one of the core founders of Black Radish Theatre and cast member, Duval Lang. Hi, Duval. Hi, Sue. How are you? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Black Radish Theatre, the play is called Mesa. Tell us all about it. Mesa is a road trip with uh, two unlikely travelers. And they're driving from Calgary to Mesa, Arizona. One is a 30-ish writer. The other one is a 93-year-old man. Uh, the writer's girlfriend's grandfather, who has spent 25 winters in Arizona in a trailer park. Hmm. And the girlfriend encourages um, 
uh, the writer, who is kind of in a funk. His career is going nowhere. He needs some inspiration. So she feels that this will be a good thing for him to do. Uh, he gets excited about seeing a bunch of iconic stops from Calgary down to Mesa, and they're going to eat at interesting mom-and-pop road diners and listen to some Western country music on the way down. The old man, he's having none of that. He wants to stick to the interstate. He wants to eat at Denny's. He wants to sleep at Motel 6, and he wants to get there yesterday. <laughs> Duval, I understand that this uh, play has um, stood the test of time and made its premiere in our city 20 years ago. Is that right? Yes, it was uh, around uh, 2000 at the... Uh, at the High Performance Rodeo. It's gone on several tours across the country and to the UK a couple of times. It's been performed in the US. It uh, it has truly stood the test of time. And it's time for Calgary to see it again. Now talk to us about a play that has really virtually two main characters in it and that's about it. They are two strong and likable characters. The old man is a bit crusty at times. <laughs> uh, the, the the young guy is he, he wants inspiration he wants his vessel to be filled but we also have two musicians along the way that play us road music as we travel from uh, uh, place to place so it's an integral part of the show as well it's not a lonely two person play it's got a quite a bit of depth to it for theater goers who might not be familiar with Black Radish uh, Theater Group tell us about the group there were four of us. There still are four of us who desperately wanted to do Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett. And we decided that we would do it ourselves. We'd start a company and put on this rather iconic production, which we did here at Grand last spring. Very enthusiastic reviews. It was a a very fine production, if I do say so myself. (laughs) And everyone kept saying, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? So we picked Mesa by Doug Curtis, a Calgarian. Well, it sounds like a fun journey, so we wish you luck. Break a leg, I guess, is the right thing to say. Hey, it's, it's a really good comedy for this, for the time that we find ourselves in. So if you need a laugh, come out and see Mesa. Thanks so much for joining us. That's Duval Lang. He is an actor with Black Radish Theatre. Mesa is on starting March 19th at the Grand's Flanagan Theatre. You get all the details at blackradishtheatre.ca.